live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. There is no shortage of disaster in the world. Epidemics, wars, earthquakes, tsunamis, the list goes on, claim countless lives every year. For those who live, life often becomes a series of tragedy and tribulation, as they are left without food, shelter, or even their own health. Worse yet, in these disaster-stricken countries, the infrastructure often collapses only to exacerbate the situation. As the civil war in Syria rages on, almost half a million people have lost their lives and hundreds of thousands more are left homeless and helpless. The 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake and tsunami claimed the lives of about a quarter of a million people. The 2010 earthquake in Haiti, the Cyclone Nargis of 2008 in Myanmar, and these are just in our recent history. In 1556, the Shaanxi earthquake in China killed over 800,000 people. As we said, the world is not lacking in disaster. But we are not here to talk about the destruction that our home, planet Earth, doles out every once in a while as if it's taking some sadistic form of rent. We're here to talk about some good. About how in disaster people come to the aid of other people. Real heroes to the rescue. One such organization is ISRAID, a non-for-profit that provides disaster relief around the globe, helping literally rescue people from the rubble or ashes or flooded streets, providing them with immediate medical care, food, and shelter. But it doesn't end there. Israel sticks around long after the emergency state is over in an effort to help rehabilitate the disaster-stricken country, to facilitate the renewal and building of infrastructure so that after the organization leaves the country can live on. We decided to prepare a two-part special with two people from the organization. From an organizational standpoint, Israel, being from Israel, has many advantages both in the emergency state of a country and in the aftermath in which there is more of a focus in rehabilitation. Vonny Glick, the co-CEO of Israel, joins us for part two of our special. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com, your best source for Jewish news on the web. Also in cooperation with Secret Tel Aviv, Israel's largest online social network community in English. Just look for the group on Facebook or visit them at secrettelaviv.com. Subscribe to Two Nice Jewish Boys on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate us. I like the rock, you know, the little touch to it. Have Nagila, but you know, still badasses. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we have with us here Vonny Glick, right? Indeed. Hey, Vonny. Hi. How are you? Good evening. So um, tell us a little bit. Let's start with Israel. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the organization. What is it? So Israel is um, an organization that was founded about 16 years ago by a group of people that had been working in the sphere of humanitarian aid for years. Um, and they saw that everywhere they went, there were many Israelis, many Jews, many people that came and brought tools from this country, mm-hmm. um, but there was no flag. One of the things that's very common during disaster responses is that everyone has their national flag there, whether they're pro- you know, governmental or non-governmental. You show up and you have the French and you have the Americans and you have the Canadians. And Syrian. That too. Um, and then <laughs> you didn't have any Israelis. Okay. And they said, okay, let's get together and build an organization that will be able to embody that. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where it was born. Why didn't the state do it in the first place? 
Um, so Israel actually has been, uh, uh, or was, let's say, from 56 to 73. What people often don't know is that Israel was one of the world leaders in foreign aid. Um, what they had, the Afro-Asian Institute, and back then, Mashav, which is the government agency, were very, very strong, were active all around the world. And I know that when I started in this field um, in Nepal about 10 years ago, and I actually went to, I was going to open a a daycare center. Long story short, I was going to open a daycare center. I had no idea. I was 20 years old. And I went to try and find the, the woman that, you know, was called the larger-than-life mother of early childhood development in Nepal. It was this, like, 75-year-old woman called Agatatapa. And I went to meet her, and I came from my notebook, and I said, okay, tell me what to do. I'm ready. And she said, wait a second. Where are you from? And I said, Israel. And she said, oh, Israel, Haifa, Haifa, Haifa. Turns <laughs> out everything she knew about is about early childhood development came from Israel. So really? Israel really, really was a, a strong player in this field. Um, and then I guess what happened, 73, OPEC oil embargo, um, underlying countries had to choose between oil and Israel. They picked oil. And um, Israel kind of got traumatized and never ha really has done as much since. Um, Israel gives very little to foreign aid today as a country. Um, but we as an organization are very proud also to, you know, enjoy strong relations with the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Prime Minister's Office. We coordinate all of our work to different embassies around the world. Um, but in essence, today, that is not, a, let's say, within the budget, a big part of Israel's um, foreign policy. I see. So giving foreign aid, but you mean... You you mean to say that the reason that Israel doesn't give foreign aid is because of that embargo? The once upon a time, I you know I wouldn't like to presume as to what has made what has made that decision consistent over the past forty odd years or so. But um, back then, um, that is when it stopped. When Israel stopping as active a player in this that sphere, mm -hmm. um, and since then it's never really come back to be as strong or in the same amount. And today, most of the aid is given as as disaster. Um, response to disaster, meaning like uh, health and... and um, Israel today as a country um, acts in very few, um, on very few occasions. Uh -huh. um, you know, there some of the major disasters, you have the army that shows up with the um, hospital, and that's pretty much the extent of what the government does, along with a certain amount of people from around the world that come for a training here okay. um, on very limited budgets. Okay, so Israel is not uh, actually a government organization. No, it's what, a non-for-profit. Yeah, it's a not pro non-for-profit. It's an NGO, non-governmental organization, uh -huh. um, registered. What we call ourselves is an international humanitarian aid organization with headquarters in Israel. Okay, how many people are you? Um, so today there are about two hundred and seventy odd um, staff and volunteers. For the most part, staff. Um, spread out right now in about 17 countries. What's the profile of the average volunteer? Um, there are two types of profiles. On the one side, you have the technical experts. So we have doctors, we have social workers, we have water engineers, people that will come for, let's say, about three weeks and then they'll be volunteers, or they'll come for a month, two months, or multiple years, and we'll call them um, usually staff, and they'll stay with us long term. On the other side, you have sort of project managers, people that have... Um, expertise in managing both programs and projects 
particularly in the non-for-profit world, but also that have experience working in developing countries, which is a must in this case. And mm -hmm. just to be clear, what's the goal, the main goal of the organization? How would you define so that? So our mission really is to arrive in um, countries in crisis and then to accompany those countries as they try and move from the initial stages of aid all the way to sort of sustainable living, meaning there's a gap. And this is one that people are becoming more and more aware of, but that typically doesn't really hit the news. So disaster happens, woohoo. Um, you know, everyone cries, it goes on the news, everyone Facebook talks about posts. it, exactly, Ooh, lots of likes, enormous lots amount of, of likes. Lots of sharers Share. also. That's if you're really, really good, you know, yeah. that's if it's a good picture of someone. If a child dies and on the beach. If you really care, you share. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's the new thing, that's yeah. it, yeah, yeah, right yeah. there. Um, and so then people arrive, they send what we call the aid circus, where literally hundreds of organizations show up from everywhere, and there's a lot of pressure, everyone has to be the best. Um, and unfortunately, more often than not, instead of coordinating, working together, people are sort of fighting to try and get to the right place because right. it's not as if people are waiting in line to receive aid. When you need help, you're not in the street like in some sexy movie saying, oh, white man, please help me. You're mm -hmm. typically probably lying under your bed, terrified, hurt, whatever. Um, so really, the chaos in the beginning is very challenging. But more often than not, then what happens is the news moves on to the next one. Most of the organizations go V, go home and go on to the next one, and the population is left there. Who kept talking about Nepal six months after the earthquake when all of a sudden um, thousands of people were dying of the cold because they didn't have houses because no one rebuilt? Mm -hmm. Nobody. And um, Okay, so let's take a step back because I do want to talk about where Israel is today and sure. the different projects it has, go it has going on right now. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about the founding. Like, So it started in 2001. Was yeah. there one specific crisis it started with? or? Well, it responded to a few things. Um, you know, there was a big one was Rwanda. There was one person, um, Shah Zahavi, who was at the time a volunteer, and he pushed forward together with Mira Bulafia and uh, Mulido and other people that are now part of our board that then um, got together and said, after that, after Kosovo, after earthquakes in Honduras, after the earthquake in Turkey, it's time for us to get, get together and do something. Um, the real first big crisis that happened in 21st century in humanitarian aid um, and that Israel was strongly involved in was the South Asian tsunami in 2004. And that mm -hmm. was really the big first crisis. Um, but mm -hmm. really the organization all the way to up till, until Haiti in 2010, it was... Very much touch and go. Find some people, they have expertise, throw them in the field, they'll do a little bit of aid here and there, they'll give out some food, they'll give out some water, they'll send a few doctors, they'll do rehabilitation a bit, but after three weeks, they'll go home. Mm -hmm. And Haiti was really the first time that the organization showed up and understood that it had a um, responsibility to stay long term. And so we're still in Haiti now, um, seven years later. Oh, wow. So when you so in two thousand and one till two thousand and four the organization was just getting started, yeah. And then there was the the tsunami, and then up until about two thousand the the earthquake in Haiti happened in two thousand ten. Agreed. Okay, and now they're still there today for yeah. seven years. So what does that work look like for seven years? Well, it changes a lot. It goes through you know every country is completely different, and Haiti mm -hmm. is its own special brand of uh, beauty and chaos. And uh -huh. um, in the beginning, it was search and rescue, doctors. Um, we had a hospital from here helping with rehabilitation for children that were amputees. We had um, schools going. We had community mobilization, youth movement style stuff. And then over time, um, we moved down to the villages. We said, okay, you know, the, the city is crazy. We're working in these makeshift camps, but let's try and look at the source of the problem. And so moving out to Leogan, to the villages. 
mm-hmm. um, and then trying there to work on everything, everything from bringing Israeli agriculture there to working with this um, women's group that started to use paper mache art um, and try and sell it. And we connected them to Macy's. They started selling at Macy's. Actually, funny enough, one of our donors actually gave it to the former pope, mm-hmm. um, which was a funny thing. And wow. so for months they did that. And then working also on non-formal education, which is you know always a big deal. Literacy, computer skills, ling- linguistic skills, um, and then opening community center. And But it sounds like you guys almost get there. And yeah. you start fixing problems that weren't even like that were there before the if crisis. We're here already, <laughs> but that, of course, but that's yeah. how the world works. At yeah. the end of the day, you know, show up in. I'll give another example. Show up in the Philippines after the typhoon, and you go in certain places and you start talking about trauma, which is another very big thing of ours. That of course Israel has so much trauma. Look how people drive. But at the end of the day, they're causing trauma. Exactly, yeah. but it's also it's a cycle. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the day, people come up and they start talking to you about trauma that they experienced decades beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, being able to deal with the situation that you're in has a, is like sort of like Maslow's pyramid at the end of the day. You arrive in a disaster. If, if you show up speaking about agriculture to a farmer even, he's going to eat his seeds. He's stuck in the right now. What am I going to eat? How do I not make sure my wife isn't raped? My kids don't disappear? Um, and then oftentimes even... Stuck in the trauma of yesterday. Oh my God, what happened? I lost everyone. What am I going to do? Uh-huh. So part of what we see as our role and the responsibility really of an actor showing up is to think about how we work with them so that when we leave, things are better. Because the world is filled with all these beautiful hospitals that white people showed up and built all over Africa. And, you know, they were gorgeous and they worked as long as the white people came. And one day they left. And when uh-huh. they left, now the best thing left for people to do is to dry their laundry on the state-of-the-art antenna or to uh-huh. sleep on the MRI bed. And the question today is... Which is comfortable. Very comfortable. It, it beats the ground, but, you know, it's a bit of an expensive piece of equipment. But what is our, the Israelis' added value, special value, if you will, that is that differs us from the other delegates? So I could go on for a few of the on a few of the technical things. I could speak about the agriculture. I could speak about the tech. I could speak about the trauma skills, about the medical skills. At the end of the day, though, one of the strongest things is um, the ability to improvise. There is something about being in this country which is kind of messy all the time. You know, you want to try and get a phone line, it's never easy. You want to try and get away from hot, forget it. You're, you're there for life. But You want to selfie with the President of the United States? You got it. You got but it. But no, but what is, that's a good example because you know what? You want to selfie the President of the United States, you just go for it. Yeah. And that and it's the chutzpah. It's the, <laughs> the best of kind of the high tech and everything in the startup world that you have in Israel is based just on those values. It's based on the idea you that... You put a lot on Owen Hazan's shoulders, but okay. He's, a, he's you know, a, a, let's put it a tangent kind of... Um, <laughs> An appendage. He's a ricochet. He's a weird, yeah, exactly. He's a weird yeah. appendage of that. But at the end right. of the day, there is this idea that says the country is a challenging place. You don't expect the system to ever work for you necessarily. So everyone has kind of built this idea that they can be the new something that can invent something. And when you, and it means that afterwards the startup usually needs to be bought out by an American company, kind of stabilize it and make sure that these Israelis are so out of the box sometimes that there is no box even. You need to kind of organize them. But in the midst of what is the most chaotic situation that you can have in the world where people are stuck without any knowledge. You want to ask the police? There is no police. You want to talk to a government? There is no government. You want to talk to the UN? They're also trying to find out what's going on. So in those moments, what you need is you need people that are independent enough not to say, wait a second, what does the manual say? 
mm-hmm. and okay um wait. fill this form please sir really and that and that's what happens you show up it's always like this it's um one of those like small secrets of the trade is that you show up and everyone like all the pictures from the airport leaving and tatam and all this country with their flag and that country with their flag and you land there and everyone's stuck at the airport they're all stuck at the airport waiting for someone to tell them what to do and where to go and how the model from the last disaster will apply to this disaster even though it's a different crisis it's a different country um and the advantage of being no one takes the initiative very few people take the initiative and there's a lot of value to being small nimble and being able to then find the gaps and just meet them immediately mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. were you in haiti yourself I visit. I was in at the time. I was not there for the initial response. I've been to Haiti a few times since. When, when did you start in the? Tell I, us about your role in the company. So I in arrived in Israel um, off the back of years in Nepal. I'm working in the field of international development um, with an Israeli organization called Tevel Betzedek. Um, and so after those years, um, and Tevel Betzedek had partnered with. It's raid for Haiti, and at the time, I said no to going to Haiti because I was afraid that. I wouldn't want to come back to Nepal because I said, you know, going for a crisis, I'd been in Nepal for three and a half years. I had a life there and I didn't want to go. I then at the, at the end of it all did leave and I joined Israel in 2011, right after um, the Japan tsunami, actually, the Japan earthquake and tsunami. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been with Israel pretty much ever since. So what was your first crisis? What was your first? Um, so I went on a few trips, you know, I went, I was in... Um, in Japan, so but that was six months after in the beginning. And then I went to Kenya in the middle of the drought and went to refugee camps in Kenya. Um, and then actually, funnily enough, my first like real disaster was um, Hurricane Sandy in New York, <laughs> which is pretty funny. And um, Taking care of the poor, poor New Yorkers. <laughs> you'd be surprised, you know. There, there's something about the, the U.S. and not the initial disaster phase, but kind of like um, a few the days aftermath. after. The aftermath, when if you're a family and your insurance company said, well, you don't have, um, you know, was it hurricane insurance and flood insurance, so, you know, we're not going to pay you and you don't have the money to and your basement is flooded with everything from your civil war, great-grandfathers or whatever, all the way to your savings. And, and your but did yeah. you not feel a, a li- even a little bit that you know because you talk about rehabilitating these these societies that are so far behind everybody else like going to the united states you know it is helping behind isn't it well yeah no that's what i'm saying helping these these like you know in haiti or in nepal helping these people that find themselves in a situation and they don't have the infrastructure to deal with it of course it's weird um i showed up in the state saying you know what am i going to do here but we we showed up and we saw that there's this very particular small niche we don't Mm -hmm. stay in the u.s we don't you know we now have a branch there but for other purposes but like we just showed up and we said what can we do and we noticed that there's this gap in terms of just sheer manual labor and trying to clean things up and we bring israeli volunteers to do it but i think my real first big disaster was uh, the philippines so what um, was your role there specifically, for example? In the Philippines? Yeah. So the Philippines was leading the team. It was arriving with our doctors and making sure that they had where to go, making sure that we knew what we were doing, um, going from city to city, working out um, then what our social workers were going to do, making sure that the aid we delivered was done properly. Because... So you're like the Ed Harris of the, of the team, <laughs> Nepal 13. 
Like, Apollo 13. Okay, I was wondering Westworld didn't work so well. <laughs> but, say, you but know. he has hair, man. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You know, but wait, was, first of all, for our listeners, before we get any farther, what happened in the Philippines and yeah. when? And Typhoon 2013, November 8th. It's had the, lar- the strongest winds ever to hit land. We're talking about 320 kilometers an hour. For American people, that's like more or less 200 miles an hour. Um, literally, it's arriving in like a Tim Burton movie. All these like palm trees are all bent to the side with all of their leaves pointing one way. And you show up and, you know, the city of Tacloban, it's a funny thing. You have this city, it's called Tacloban. It had about 250,000 people. And a small wave hit it. Small, I say, because Japan, you know, tsunami was about 130 feet high. But here we're talking about a small wave, about 15 feet, came in. And the first thing it did is um, kill about 5,000 people in the city and leave their bodies throughout. But people don't think of the aftermath. The aftermath is where you get the you know, multiple effect or the ricochet or the ripple, say. You have all the villages around that then also were affected, have no food. And so they decide that the only way that they're going to get food, of course, is to go to the big city and try and get what they can. Mm-hmm. So they fall upon the city and start to rampage and ransack whatever they can. At the same time, on top of that, in the hills behind the city, you have a group of Maoist insurgents. They were also affected. They also come back into the city, come down into the city, start fighting. They also They're armed. Yeah, of course. And they engage yeah. with the army and start fighting. Then to make it better, the cherry you know, on the cake is that you have three maximum security prisons there. Where oh, when God. the water starts to rise, the guards have to make a decision. Open the gates or let them drown. So they open the gates and let a thousand maximum security prisoners out into the open. And they, you know proceeded to find um, women and children and take them into cellars and so forth. And then the special forces were deployed to hunt them down one by one until they killed them all. And that's kind of when we arrive. Those are the settings. So, so it's what, like a domino yeah. effect. I mean, it just completely goes out of control. How yeah, do you, I mean, you get there and it's like there. this. How do you even begin what can to tackle? Vonnie, yeah. the French-Canadian-Israeli, yeah. do? Um. And a lot of it has to do with experience and sort of community-based responses and being able to arrive in a situation and um, know, first of all, more or less how the structures work in this kind of work and, and whether it's, you know, how do you enter a community? How do you work in community? Even basics. How do you give out aid? How do you do it? What is it? You know, people think the great pictures of some guy showing up with a truck and throwing rice off the back. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that the first time you do that and your rice finishes before your line runs out, good luck, start running. Yeah, we had uh, Maya Rimmer here on the show and she was telling us about a story where she was in Syria and her initial instinct when she first Not in got Syria. there. Uh, sorry, she was dealing with Syrian refugees in Greece yeah, and her, yeah. fir- her initial instinct was to walk up to the first... Uh, a, a lady actually walked up to her and asked her for you know, a pair of shoes. Initial instinct was to immediately help this Which woman. She so did. she went and she yeah. got shoes and she gave it to her. And then right afterwards, you know, 20, 30 women came up to her asking her, Why, where are our shoes? Why did you do that? What happened? What about us? Exactly. And she realized that there's, you know, there's procedure to things. So this is the thing. There's a, in our field, we talk a lot about the do no harm principle. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the logic is like this. More than 80% of organizations that come and people that show up with good intentions, they usually end up doing more harm than good. And there's a real, you know, in these places, there's this real... Um, let's say, challenge that you often get caught in what we like to call the God's complex. You show up and you're the savior. You literally, as a person, can now choose who lives and who dies and why. Mm-hmm. And there's a level of responsibility there um, that not to screw up 
more what's already happening there. And also at the same time, not to make people dependent. Right. Because then you're disempowering them more than you are actually helping. And so the idea here is through experience and through having learned how to work in different countries, you arrive in these situations and you know how to start to speak with the different actors, whether it's the local government, whether it's the national government, whether it's the UN groups, which speak a very particular language, and you go to different what they call cluster meetings, and you interact with them, and it's the world of crazy acronyms that make no sense and that you need to learn by heart because they love their forms and they love their bureaucracy, but they also are really trying to do an impossible job of coordinating. Mm -hmm. And in these situations, you need to be able to do that. And at the same time, respond to the fact that the, the situation continually changes so you guys excel at that yeah. that you just just described pretty initially. much and what's the price you pay for being israelis the price we pay for being israelis is that we're probably not organized enough and that's why we try our best now to um, as an organization this is part of what you know maturing is about about doing things differently and learning to grow if your question was about the political of course you know we try and skirt that question whenever we can okay um Actually, I've never had that price for it whatsoever. Um, I've been everywhere. What do you mean? You can't go to Syria, for example. Um, have you seen many organizations in Syria physically? No. Most of them are based in Turkey and working with nationals in Syria remotely. Um, we work in northern Iraq, in Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Um, in Iraq? Yes. With the, the Yazidi women? With the Yazidi women. We work also there are a lot of, inter- of you know, internally displaced people, of IDPs that are there um, from both Yazidis, but also Muslim and Christian people from um, the whole fight with Daesh, um, with ISIS. And so we've worked a lot there. And we've worked, even today, we have people on the beaches that are in Greece, both there on Lesbos and in the north. And in Germany, we actually have... Arabic-speaking Israelis or, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel that are mm-hmm. there on the ground working as Israel. Mm-hmm. And our message is that we come from the country of Israel. We're not a government organization. We're not here to say pro-government, anti-government. But we want to bring values and knowledge that come from Israel um, mm-hmm. and that we should be shared with the world. And actually, so far, you know, I can remember one instance where In a refugee camp in Kenya, we were told by the UN that, um, you know, Al-Shabaab was really active in the area and we should probably not establish permanent work there because it could make them a target. Um, so we left and we went to another refugee camp. Um, unfortunately for them, you know, a few months later, um, was a, I think at the time, 11 Spaniards were killed in a... Um, in a roadside bomb or something. And, you know, it's, a, it's, a hack, it's an active zone, but... Right. Actually, oftentimes we have the opposite effect. But what about being used, ending up being used as um, a propaganda uh, tool by the government? You know, today, when I think the, the world of social media has made it so that everyone is a, is a propaganda tool for someone. You take a picture of someone, you plaster some quote on their picture, and you say, this is what they said. We all think we know Joe Biden now because of everything that's written on the, on the memes there, but like, we don't actually know him. But these are all the things that are written about him, so it must be him, so he must be cool. Nothing against him or for him. But at the end of the day, for us, we feel that we end up being um, a spokesperson for both sides. Someone can say, this is what Israel really is, and someone can say, this is what Israel should be. And we don't have a problem with it as long as you know we can stay as neutral as possible so that people of all backgrounds, faiths, and so forth, and nationalities can feel comfortable working for us. We want the South Sudanese 
um, Israel aid staff and the Japanese Israel staff to feel comfortable working for Israel. Mm -hmm. So let's, I want to take us back to uh, Iraq. Yeah. Um, because I understand that you were there yourself. Two times, yeah. so can you tell us a little bit about what Israel is doing there and what sure. your experience was there? And isn't it scary as hell? Actually, no. First of all, best lamb in the world. Um, you know, great, great food. But I uh, know. Uh, How great do you eat people the lamb? Well. It's it like a, in a shawarma? No, like? no, no. What is it? It's um, something called cozy. It's um, they first, if I understand correctly, they first boil it for about 12 hours and they cook it for about 12 hours and it it's so soft. It's just wow. amazing. We should go try the lamb in Iraq. <laughs> exactly. You know, every time our teams go out, I'm like, make sure they have the lamb. But, you know, listen, we go through a, a, a strong um, security kind of discussion with the different contacts we have to understand what the situation is. When we arrived um, the first time in Iraq in 2014, um, of course, people that go have a second nationality. Of course, when we go, we're careful about who we say. We don't walk around with, you know, big flags saying we're from Israel. Um, not even for our own safety, but to put in kind of blunt terms, if you give someone a bag of food and then he's killed for it, it's a little bit counterproductive. Mm -hmm. um, so at the end of the day, what we want to do is make sure that the people that we work with um, know who we are and know how we work. And some of the people they work together for, um, the beneficiaries know, but in general, it's something that we don't advertise publicly and we try to preserve the sort of um, privacy of the people that we work with, the locations, and so forth. So this area in northern Iraq, there's a, it's like a new, uh, there's a name for it, no? Ro Rojava? No. No, it's that, the Kurd. That? No, no, no. It's the Kurdish. It's called the Kurdistan region of Iraq. Okay. Um, and it's a quasi-independent state, um, with its own government. That's part of the sort of the federal state of Iraq. Uh huh. Um, it's filled yeah, as Kurds. Okay. Uh, once upon a time, there were you know there are two hundred thousand Jewish Kurds here in Israel, um, and there still is a very very small but present um, Jewish population in Kurdistan. Mm. Um, one fact about Kurdistan is that it's just. For instance, and no American soldier was ever killed in that area. It's an area that has what we call the Pashmerga, which are the well-known their um, military forces that are very, very um, reputable. They're known for how well they fight, and they've been really holding the line with ISIS for years now. A lot of um, women soldiers as no? well. Exactly. That's yeah. one of the things that's well known. They have. The, the whole Kurdish politics thing is a whole complicated thing between Syrian Kurds and um, Turkish Kurds, and then. Iraqi Kurds and there are different there are two languages and two dialects and so forth but the area of itself is quite stable I felt very safe I have to say I felt safe I felt comfortable um, it was really interesting and uh, I felt uh, like I was seeing the a really strong um, sense of self-determination of another people mm -hmm. right. are the Kurdish people uh, very religious it depends there are um, Muslim Christian Kurds as well like there are both Jews and Jews as well, exactly. Who are here, but... Most of them are here, but they're Kurds, and yeah. they feel strongly about their heritage. Um, it ranges, you know, it depends on the area. And the government that's arising there, is it a, a, a religious? Is no, it a there, are two, there are two families, more or less, that are dominant there, the Barzanis and the Talibanis. The Barzanis are now in power. Mm -hmm. um, it's a democracy as such. And, and such. Well, it's a democracy. I wasn't there to, you know, monitor the elections so that, but it's a democracy, and you have the Barzanis there in power, and uh -huh. um, they are sort of a secular. They're not a faith-based kind of state, but they embrace there's a Muslim majority, 
Mm-hmm. Um, but they're quite tolerant depending on, you know, who you ask, the situation, the year and so forth of the Christians as well. And how did you help the Yazidis, the Yazidi women? So we were working with different groups. Um, when we arrived in the situation, first and foremost, was giving immediate aid. In the beginning, when we arrived, that was right after all the big onslaughts by ISIS. And they'd, you know, they took over the homeland of the Yazidis. They took over... Um, Singal and they arrived at the mountain and that was the whole big story of them being stuck there and the genocide and so forth. And so a lot of them were fleeing to um, Kurdistan in that area there, in the area of Dohuk in the north. Um, and so we arrived there in camps to provide them with everything from, you know, baby powder to more importantly, um, you know, blankets and um, just basic mattresses and so and things like that. And that mm-hmm. was the beginning. And we also worked with the Christian communities. Then we started to set up um, an interesting education program um, together with an American organization called STEM Synergy um, that focuses on what we call STEM education. STEM education is science, technology, engineering, and math. It focuses on trying to um, bridge the gap between what you learn on paper and what you see in the world. Mm-hmm. which is always a gap and we're looking at countries where the education system is not very robust so they have no connection whatsoever they literally learn what's in the textbook which is usually wrong just by memorizing it and then spitting it back out there's no concept that this will actually connect in any way to what you breathe and what, how you live as a person and when you're living in an idp camp and during the summer it's like what 53 54 degrees celsius um you don't really want to go play outside you don't you can't really play outside the only thing you can get involved in it's probably mischief. Um, and that's something that we don't talk about enough when we talk about refugees or IDPs. Not the, the crappy conditions, but the situation where you're in a weird kind of limbo where you think, you know, you wake up in the morning and go, huh, should I sweep my tent? Eh, I'll be gone tomorrow. But you've been there for a year and you might be there for five. And in many refugee camps, like in Kenya, the average amount of time you'll spend there is 20 years. So you're going to live there. Mm-hmm. So sweep the tent. It's exactly. uh, I, I, it's completely different, but it reminds me of my mother who lived in the, we lived in the states for thirty years in a tent, and she always no, she always kept a room full of boxes in the uh, with the claim that you know we're moving to Israel tomorrow, and I was like, no, <laughs> mom, we've been here for like thirty years, like yeah. we're not going anywhere. Did she use but the boxes? Eventually, no. I mean, no, they were filled like with stuff oh, wow. no but eventually actually they're back now but that's not i mean they're not did refugees they use those they're not box- idps but did they use those boxes to come here was she right all along that's a good question i have to i have to i never mar- i should have marked them so i could have <laughs> so i could have known get back to us on that but um okay so i want to take us a step back actually again um, again we keep going no, back we're not do, going yeah. forward no, at all. i know no because you do a good job of going forward and talking about like it uh, in uh, in detail about these things but i want to Go back and because I heard you, you're talking about the Yazidis and as they were fleeing from the war in Iraq and then there was a genocide. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because I am yeah. completely. So unaware. the Yazidis um, are their own faith based on um, many different backgrounds. It's Zoroaster, it's um, going back thousands of years. Um, and they look a little bit different. It's interesting. A lot of the Yazidis are. They look sort of, they have darker skin, but they have bright eyes, bright, strikingly green or blue eyes and often blonde hair. Mm -hmm. So it's a very particular look. Um, Like the Fremen in June, if you guys know June. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so what happened is um, for ISIS, how the Muslims look at them is they see that in their story, um, there's one character that 
in Islam becomes Satan. I can't remember which one. And in, for the Yazidis, that character becomes the peacock that is their god, or one, of, you know, the manifestation of. And so they have a very specific okay. hate for the Yazidis as being, you know, the most blasphemous that there is. Okay. And when they started to take over that area of Iraq, they literally went straight for them, and they went to pillage and kill. Um, and they have a sacred mountain there. Um, and so all, a lot of Yazidis fled there after a lot of the women had been kidnapped. And, you know, still today, there are thousands of Yazidi women that are um, sold as meat and, you know, held by um, the warriors of ISIS or whatever you call them. Um, and so they arrived on the mountain fleeing there and there was a siege, a very famous siege where they had to survive there and were pleading for international assistance from the international community um, while they were being, you know, sort of left there with children without food or water and all their family members were being killed and tens of thousands were killed and only now are we starting Wait. to find the mass graves. What year is this about? 2014. Okay. And only now are we starting to find the mass graves. And so um, the area, not all of it, but a fair part of the area was um, liberated by the Pashmerga um, about a year or so back. And... Um, the Yazidis don't really want to go back. You know, they're they're fleeing their homeland because of everything that happened. Because you know, they say they're the neighbors that were there before were there during, and they're still there now. And they have lost their sense of trust. And everywhere they dig up are mass graves, and um, they fled in mass, trying to go wherever they can. Actually. Right, they are strangers in strange land with no home. Yes, yeah, sounds, sounds familiar. familiar. Exactly, yeah. and, and they feel very connected in the, for that reason to Israel. The Kurds well. also, by the, the way. Kurds as well. The, the Kurds, Kurds have had yeah you know, plus or minus formal or under-the-radar relations with Israel yeah, for yeah, a very yeah, long yeah. time now. So, uh, I'm sorry for my ignorance, yeah. but the Yazidis and the Kurds are two different sects, or two different... Uh, the Kur yeah, ethnic groups. Ethnic groups, yeah. yeah. Um, I want to ask you, though... Yeah, what was that? No, everything's cool. I want to ask you, though, uh, Vani, if you could maybe tell us um, an experience that you had um, that goes with you that touched you and and still goes with you um there are a lot of experiences i think that you know when you're when you arrive what what i uh, it's hard to say love about disasters because that sounds really really bad but what i will let you say that thank you i already said it it's, that's <laughs> it it's recorded but um what i feel strongly about and what you know inspires me all the time is arriving in situations and Typically, we all kind of expect to see the worst come out of people in these situations because you're in this survival mode and it's sort of fighting to get what you need to to survive because if not, literally, you might die. Um, but we don't often talk about how it also brings out the best in people, how people um, have all their physical but also all their social boundaries kind of broken down. For you know, example? For example, in Nepal, you can have two people that are from completely different castes. One of them is a Brahmin from the higher caste and the other one's a Dalit at the bottom. And they're not allowed to talk, to touch. Literally in the village, they could have separate taps. And, they're not, and the Dalit is an untouchable, you call them. But then when they're both stuck under the rubble, they're not that different. And all of a sudden, you know, connections are made. Well, what about you? Where are you in the story? I think for me in the story, the most important is being there as a witness. Um, there are so many stories. You know, I, I somehow tend to force myself to remember a lot of the difficult stories. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll give one positive story for me, which is in the weirdest of environments. Um, in Sierra Leone, in the midst of the um, Ebola outbreak, mm -hmm. um, I went to 
work we wanted to work with like the most difficult population in many ways with of the first responders um, which was the burial teams and we wanted to build with groups of social workers and so i said you know i'm not a social worker we have a social workers already but we need to build trust and i know what i can do i will go work with them and um, i'll experience what they do and i'll try and build trust that way and you know and these are people that you know We'll put it this way, you don't have to, you're not in a very good way when you decide to wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a burial team member for, you know, the Ebola death. <laughs> it's not exactly what you aspire to do in life right. when you wake up. So right. these are people that had to like hide from their families because they wouldn't allow them back home. These are people that often had issues with alcoholism, violence, mental health issues and everything. And, and when I arrived, they were so like, what the hell is this white person doing here? Like, really? But then they saw me struggle to put on those suits. And it was hilarious. It was, you know, the biggest inspiration that I gave them was the fact that I was terrible at what I do. I was terrible at putting on those suits every time. I was terrible at trying to um, carry the bodies on the stretcher. I was terrible at the whole thing. And it gave them the best empowerment I think I could give them that day. And by the end, they were so proud. They're showing me how to shovel, how to dig graves. They were showing me how to do everything there. And by the end, like they were, when they came in in the morning, they were not smiling. By the end, despite the incredibly horrific work that it was, there was that opportunity there um, for them really to feel from this, this nothing, a sense of empowerment that went and carried them over time. Um, and for me, that kind of reminded me that even with the smallest of gestures, um, we can go a long way and we can go and we can make real change. I But wonder, more... I'm sorry, but what, what your dreams look like? <laughs> um... You know, you're okay for the most part. Really? Yeah, I have to say... No you, Ebola bodies. No, you know, one of the things is that I think, you know, there are different... There are, you can read entire books that are written about all the issues with aid workers and everything from alcohol to drugs to nightmares to PTSD and all that. And I think that one of the, the, the healthiest ways of dealing with it is really um, finding the right coping mechanism for you. Uh, I come from a family, my dad's a teacher of uh, Jewish meditation, among other things. And one of the, and for me, dead bodies don't do anything. Um, okay. not, nobody's there. Eitan? Aren't you, weren't you scared shitless, though? I mean, if you're not scared of dead bodies, but of death itself, I mean, going to Sierra Leone and oh, midst of the Ebola outbreak? That's actually a funny story because um, my co-CEO, Yotam, with whom we've been working for about 10 years now, we are talking, he was in like, japan at the time and i was in the states in uh, washington state after wildfires there and we're trying to decide who is going to go where who is going to go to iraq and who is going to go to sierra leone and when i when we decided and i decided to go to um, iraq first i went to my parents where i spent a few days at their home and and i had all the reasons prepared to explain to them why iraq was less dangerous than the ebola <laughs> outbreak And so I finished that. I got sure back from Iraq. they weren't happy with either. <laughs> and, I, and, I, you know, and I got back from, from Iraq and to here in Israel. And I had, I think, 48 hours before getting on a plane and going to West Africa. And so I don't, you know, all of a sudden I came back and said, you know, wow, it's good I left because that place, you know, that place is bad. But Sierra Leone? Nah, that's fine. That's just, you Kids know, play. It's kids play. It's really not a big deal. At least I, you know, it's, I know where the areas are and all that. I don't know, you know, there, there's something about, um, it sounds corny, but there's something about having a purpose um, and having a sense of meaning in what you do, trying not to allow it to blind you and make you think like you're saving the world or some, 
you know, BS. But at the end of the day, there's something for letting that carry you and believing, waking up in the morning and feeling like, you know, you, you're doing something for a reason. So anyone can volunteer? No. We, as an organization, we're not a volunteer-based organization. We have, very, you know, we have projects that we start, for the most part, long-term ones, and we see the needs. The needs are based on very particular um, backgrounds and expertise. We don't want someone to deal with death and rape um, of someone that doesn't have the training for it. And right. this isn't a playground for people. But I mean, from all around the world, you yes. accept submissions. All around the world. And how can someone uh, contribute? How can someone donate? So um, you just go to um, israel.org, um, Israel, Israel has two A's, and you show up there. We provide tax-deductible giving in the U.S., in Canada, in the U.K., um, and in Israel. There are multiple ways. We accept every type of payment. Um, it's very simple. Okay. Uh, All right. We, we're just told. I'm not sure why it is. But, uh, yeah, uh, we can wrap it, I Thank think. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was Thank a great you. pleasure. Good luck. Thank you.